Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. I think one of the things we can always struggle with today, and we find even with the church that receives this, what I said, basically a moral exhortation in the applications of what it means to be in Christ, is it would be very nice if we had a temple and a palace that was right next to each other, just down the street from where we live. We could take people to that place, and we can say there is a tangible presentation of our God. He dwells right there. This is what it seems the people of Hebrews are struggling with. We may be tempted to think, well, maybe we're more advanced. We understand Christ is in heaven. But yet the truth of the gospel and the truth of the human condition is we know we are incomplete. We're reminded of this. We buy something new. You have excitement. It starts to deprecate and depreciate and fall apart. We recognize as temporary. We come to grips with this within our own bodies. That as we get older, we recognize that we are not as youthful and energetic. We don't heal as fast as we used to. We come to grips with something that's incomplete. We recognize that there's something about living in a fallen world that we will never overcome in our own strength. And yet, what do we find again and again and again? A promise. Do X, Y, and Z, you will overcome. By this product, you will have endless happiness, is what we can hear. And we can fall into this trap again and again. And so we can read Hebrews and we can say, well, these people are simple. They don't really understand the complexity of life. But if we really take this back, we see that we ourselves feel the weight and the struggle of walking through this world as incomplete, fallen human beings who experience the taste of the common curse. And so we too can ask the same question that this church is asking. Where is our advocate? Does our God care? Is our God really present in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our hardship? Does he really know what it means? And this is what I love about Hebrews. It's very profound theologically. I mean, even these verses, you can almost do a whole sermon on each citation that he gives. I mean, there there is so much here. But at the same time, we, we can't lose the forest for the trees. I know as Reformed people, we do have that tendency. But as we look at this and, and we address that question, you know, is God really with us? Do we really have a priest who cares, who relates to us? Or is God just indifferent, dwelling in heaven and saying, hey, I did my part, now you better do yours. And so when we consider this, We'll see first, I think the irony of what Hebrews is intending for us to do is we have a relational God, we have a relational man, and then we have the relational priest. And it's important to understand how this works out because the basically 14 through 18 is a conclusion 
or, or a sub-conclusion of what he's trying to do with these passages. And so let's begin with our relational God as we look at verses 5 through 8. Again, the author of Hebrews, as he started with the contrast of Christ to the angels. So now with that contrast, remember we said this isn't a church that's struggling with angelography, no, a study of angels. But this is a church that's struggling with the significance of Christ. How significant is Jesus Christ for the Christian life? That's a fundamental struggle. And how does man relate to this person, Jesus Christ, who has entered history? And so as the author of Hebrews continues on, and he tells us that, you know, we have the angels who mediated. We have the Old Testament reality of how that's mediated through angels, you know, appealing to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, as we saw last time. Now he's picking up with this again. And you'll notice with Hebrews, one of the keys, if you read ahead, he has an earthly view where he's kind of putting his arm around us and saying, here we are as earthlings walking on this earth. Oh, and here's the glory of heaven. Here's the earthly view again as you're walking through this world. Oh, here's the glory of heaven. So if, if you keep that understanding in your mind, you understand that it's not just a writer who has a scroll run in front of his desk and he loses track of his thought. He's building a case. And so he's going to kind of pause, do a bunch of citations, draw a sub-conclusion for us saying, this is what I'm trying to prove to you from the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden we're going to go back to another analogy, but it's always casting our, fo our focus and orientation to heaven. And so when he writes to us, he wants us to understand God is the one who has come and he has done something. Not for angels, but he's done something for us. And he uses this, this word in the original language in the Greek uh, for world. Sometimes we think of cosmos, we think of of John 3, and we, I'm sure we're familiar with this, that Jesus came to save the cosmos. And people say, see, it's the whole created order to bring it to glory, uh, appealing to Romans 8, and, and the creation groaning for its, its goal. He uses a word here that's, that's different than that, and, and it, it calls attention to a, a physical land. So the author of Hebrews is not saying we long for this spiritual land where we're just disembodied spirits floating around. But the word that he's using is, is a word that Satan holds out to Christ in Luke 5 or 4 verse 5 in the temptations. And he holds out the promise that Christ can have the whole human race, all the kingdoms. And so it's not just the earthly world or, or we think of the created realm or the geography. Uh, we can go through other references, Revelation 8 verse 13, the same sort of thing, calling attention to the people who live in the world. And so it's calling attention to, to the personal interaction of people who live in the world or live in that real estate. And so the author of Hebrews is doing something very profound here. He's telling us and calling our attention to a reality that there is a world to come. But this world to come is not just some abstract creation, right? We can think, well, yeah, the world to come is just heavenly glory, the recreated earth, and its glorified state. And, and it's just something that's kind of abstract. But what he's calling attention to us is that Christ, and God, is, is working to a place to bring us to a relational, glorified world. 
So he wants us to understand that the, the vision, the purpose is to bring us in a full glorified state, body and soul resurrected in glory, dwelling in a new heavens and a new, new earth. And this is what we're looking forward to. So right here, he's kind of, we think of the author putting his arm around us and saying, let's look right through this history. Let's look through this world. You're discouraged. You're beaten up. You feel weary. Look at where the Lord is bringing you. This is what your God desires. This is why he does all these things to have this personal relationship with you. This is what his redemption means. You will personally be in the presence of God in the glorified heavens and earth. So now we hear that say, okay, we understand God's relational. This is what he desires. This is why Christ took on the flesh. We understand this. But yet, I have that longing. As we talked about last time, we're, we're incomplete. We're conscious of being incomplete. And we say, all right, I know this truth, but I also know my present reality. Now the author of Hebrews is going through some citations. The first citation here, when he says testified somewhere, remember we said he's not deprecating the Old Testament. I, I think this gives weight uh, to a Jewish synagogue in Rome about to face persecution uh, being called to, to their attention, don't revert back to Judaism. Continue to press forward. And so when he says, when it's testified somewhere, an original hearer who receives his exhortation is like, oh, Psalm 8. That's what he's referring to. And so this psalm is, is, is a glorification of what man is ultimately to do, of God's relation with man, placing him in the garden, recalling this story of man's distinct and unique creation from the animals, of God breathing life into man, a very personal connection. This is not a psalm that a Jewish hearer would think as being messianic. They would think it's something about the celebration of creation, maybe a celebration of God's kingship. But here, he's taking the psalm, and he's calling to our attention that God is presenting something here of what man was to be. And you look at the flow of where this psalm is going. We're a little lower than the angels, crowned in glory and honor, everything put in subjection under his feet. This is very much the ideal of what man was to do, right? Uh, when God creates man in the Garden of Eden, don't listen to anything that is contrary to my word. Don't heed temptation. Don't give in to sin. I am a good God. This is going to be a test. Do you believe I'm a good God? Are you going to put this garden in subjection and be the caretaker guardian I have called you to be? Or will you heed the temptations of Satan? Well, we know that Adam heeded the temptations of Satan. So right here, as our mind goes to the psalm, we think to the creation story. This is what the author wants us to start daydreaming about. Man, Garden of Eden, God there with man. Man failing miserably, bringing us into sin, having this incompletion. Now, we have the application of the psalm. He's going on in verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection, he left nothing outside of his control. So verse 8 is telling us, listen, God is the one who rules over all things. What has he told us about Christ in the celebration? He is the exact character of God. He has a full glory of God. Jesus Christ is God. 
And now he's laying out, this is why Christ has, has entered history as a God-man, to undo what man has done. He's put everything in subjection under his feet. And we say, okay, so we know that, that as Christ is God, this is the reality in which we need to order our minds. We, we need to believe God really is in control. He is king. Nothing has usurped his authority. But going on, he's talking in verse 9 now about the incarnation of Christ. So he's taking Psalm 8 and saying, remember what, what man failed to do. This is why Christ took on the flesh. Jesus Christ enters history to take this form of, of subjection to fulfill the will of God. He suffered, he died, and he tastes death for us. So we understand, wait a minute, Jesus Christ doing this is a reality of what gives us hope. He has done this. Uh, there's this subjection. We're longing for this world to come. But the problem he calls our attention in verse 8. Everything's in subjection. We know that God has done this. We know that God has taken on the flesh and has redeemed. But in verse 8, we don't see it. Everything in subjection. So the author of Hebrews is saying to, I'd argue, the Roman synagogue, when the persecution comes, don't doubt the certainty of your God. He is in control. Even though you do not see the subjection as you want to see the subjection, he's still in control. When we experience the pain and anguish of this age, uh, when we're tempted to drift away as we heard last week, the author of Hebrews is saying, even though you don't see the full subjection of God, even though you struggle with this, and when you look around and you see that there's injustice in this world, there's brokenness, there's still a struggle in sin, and you're tempted to say, where is God in the midst of this? The author of Hebrews is saying, he's there. You just don't see him. Believe that he is there. Believe that he is personal. Because he has conquered death. Now, when we talk about death, we understand what he means by death. Death is not just the end of life where, where we just give up our breath. Death is that curse. And, and that curse that, that goes on is because of what man has done. When he says he tastes this death for everyone, it's not that he's done this for the whole world. But you can understand another struggle if you're a Jewish individual, right? I mean, imagine growing up your whole life following the Jewish law. You don't eat unclean food. You follow certain holidays. You fast at certain times. You undergo certain traditions. And you do not eat pigs. All of a sudden you have these guys coming into your, your place of worship. They're eating pigs. They're doing these things that you go, that is so grotesque and immoral. How can they do that? They're not one of us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, they are. You need to live together. These are the Gentiles who have come in. This Christ Jesus did not come just to secure you, but he has come to secure people beyond the Jewish nation. And so when, when we read this, everyone, and there's a temptation to say, well, we have these pig eaters coming in. This can't be true. This can't be right. The other people is saying, yeah, it is right. God's purpose has not failed. It's our perspective that's the problem. It's our view, our understanding that's the problem. It's not a problem with God. So he wants us to understand first and foremost, when we go through this age, 
We are those who have life because it is God who is relational. He has come to redeem a people, to have a relationship with his people that is a positive, loving, familial relationship comprised of Jew and Gentile. That's the first point he's making. Man's failed, God's overcome. God's prevailed in Christ Jesus. Now going on, we say, well then, what is the significance of Christ Jesus? As Christ enters history, we, we, we get a taste of it. We, we have an introduction to it. But now we have a series of passages that he gives to us. We have the first one as a citation from Psalm 22. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 22, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ on the cross. But he doesn't cite verse 1, does he? He cites the outcome of the psalm, of, of the glorification of this abandoned one who's crying out to God saying, where are you in the midst of this? It seems God has turned his back. He's not there. Christ feels this as one who has taken on the flesh experiencing this abandonment. And where does he end? He's the one who has done this in the midst of the congregation singing praises to God. It's calling attention to the glorification and completion of Christ. Verse 13 he goes on in sight 2 Samuel 22.3. Again, a time David feels as if he's abandoned. Where's God? What's going on? What's happening? And all of a sudden, 2 Samuel 22, David celebrates the Lord's victory. So it's a celebration that, that our life is not ending in confusion. It's not ending in an orientation of, well, I know Christ has overcome, but I'm never going to see it. He's saying, no. Even in the Psalter, even in the Old Testament, they felt that way and they saw the Lord's hand in their victory. Going on in verse 13, there's another citation at the end where it says, and again, these are the children of God. As we think of Isaiah's Christmas children, we think of the sign of the Messiah given to Ahaz in the context of Isaiah 8. So when we hear that, we say, okay, we understand there's something significant going on here. So, so why, why is he doing this? Well, we understand that he's bringing us to glory. So we have this, this statement in verses 10 through 12, uh, setting the stage for these citations. We understand why Jesus Christ has entered history. There's a purpose for this. Everything exists in him, as he has said. This is nothing new in terms of Hebrews, but it's reviewing He's the one who brings many sons to glory. So we're, we're hearing now, okay, so we don't see the subjection, but now he's calling attention to our inheritance rights that he is bringing us to glory. And it's not just the Jewish sons, but it's calling attention again to the Jew and Gentile being brought to glory. The many sons, more than we understand, he is the one who is doing this. And, and why does Jesus come in the form of man? Well, he, he does this as the one who is making this salvation perfect through his suffering. So again, you, you think, okay, well, he died on the cross. That's a failed mission. Hebrews is saying, no, it's not. That was the intention. Now, Hebrews 9 gets to the climax of that atonement and what was done there. But right here, the point is, listen. The purpose of Christ being on the cross should not distract you. That was necessary. 
And we say, well, well why is that so necessary? Why, why is that so important? Well, he's the one who sanctifies us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's the one who has done this. And so when you put this in the context of these Old Testament references then, the point is, he's not just the one who is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? End of Christ's mission. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, all of Psalm 22 needs to be taken in context. And what's the end of that? That he's proud of us. He brings us together in the congregation in a new world that he's establishing. He's singing praises with us and we're singing praises to him. I mean, this is a remarkable understanding of even what we see in worship today. That this is us joining together, singing praises of, to God celebrating the victory of Christ as a definitive priest. Going on then, we have 2 Samuel 22. David celebrating the reality that God is the one who saves and demonstrates his power. You can hear the author of Hebrews saying, imagine under a promise David saw this realization before God validates his word in the sending of Christ and validates the prophetic word. Remember the introduction to Hebrews saying how much more for us today with the resurrected Christ seeing his work and who he is. Going on then with the Christmas children in the context of Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9, a dark time in Israel's history with a king with a very questionable commitment to the Lord that we find is most likely apostate in this time. And yet we find that the Lord is still their king and the Lord has not abandoned his people. And how he gives these Christmas children and ultimately the messianic child that these children given to me that the very promise of the seed of the woman is going to prevail. So right here, he's saying if we want to deprecate the significance of Christ taking on the flesh, this is God coming to his people to overturn the mess that we have created and to make it so that the new world order in the proper glorified sense is established and set in time. So now we're still left with an issue, and this is why I think verses 14 through 18 need to be put into context. Because we say, well, this is great that Christ did all this. Praise God for my redemption. But I feel the pain in this age right now. And if Christ is the one who has just overcome, that's wonderful. I know at the end of my life, Things will probably work out okay is what I can take from this up to this point because it doesn't seem all that explicit. So, so what, what's the takeaway? What's the application? What's the hope? This is where you have to read verses 14 through 18. Because after the, the exhortation reminds us of the application of these Old Testament texts, he now puts his arm around us and he wants us to understand the consciousness of our struggle. And he's saying, listen, your personal God. Christ is a personal God-man. He came just like us. Took on the same flesh and blood. He understands the struggle. He understands temptation. He understands thinking about testing the word of God and whether it's valid. You know, so often we minimize the significance of Satan tempting Christ. And I... You know, Bob Strimple, my systematics professor, or Dr. Strimple, did such a good job of putting this into context. 
In terms of our temptation, we give in to sin. Satan hopes that, that we apostatize, right? That, that we turn away from Christ. That's, that's the hope. But really, nothing fundamentally in our nature changes. We're just confirming who we are as struggling sinners. But if he gets Christ to sin, this fundamentally radically changes everything. And so when Satan interacts with Christ, and the author of Hebrews says, listen, he was tempted, yet without sin, he knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means uh, to have someone whispering in your ear, is your father really good? Is God really gracious? Is God really the God he claims to be? Look at you, Jesus. You're his son, and look at how he treats you. Right? You, you can hear the wooing of this and how Christ is one who has prevailed. And we may say, well, it's great that he has prevailed. Why? Well, what's significant of this? Well, he's destroyed the devil. So this language of the devil is contrary to who God is. God is truth. He is the substance of truth. Uh, the devil in the Greek literally means slanderer, liar. And so when Christ says in, in John 8, for instance, uh, your father is a devil, the father of lies, that he's making a case that, listen, you're not in line with the Lord and, and you need to, to get in line with who I am as a Messiah. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The one who, who has us in his domain, the one who has deceived Adam, the one who continually tries to deceive us into thinking that, we can make our own wholeness. We can find our own hope. We can establish our own strength. He's saying, this is the devil. These are lies. This is not the one who gives you life. It is a lifelong slavery. So we, so we say, okay, so, so what does this mean that he has come, that, that he has redeemed us? Well, now he introduces the significance of this. When the people in the synagogue say, but where is my priest? I could go to the temple. I could bring an animal. He could sacrifice that animal. I could visibly see the animal give its life. Where's my priest? And he's saying, listen, your priest resides in heaven. And as he resides in heaven, he is the one who is interceding on your behalf. So when we're tempted hearing this theology up to verse 14 and thinking, well, it's great. I know my future's set, but what about my today? The author of Hebrews is saying, let me apply this to your day-to-day -day life. This Christ, this Lord, your God, who desires to dwell and commune with you in eternity and is building the world to come and promises it, is the same God who is your priest shepherding you through this age right now. And this priest, when we think, well, he's holy, he's righteous, he doesn't want to hear about my sin, I'm going to tarnish his reputation. What is he going to think of me if I confess whatever I want to confess? The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, he understands sin. He didn't fall into it. He's the one who's perfect, but he's the one who understands what you're going through. He has empathy for your case. Now, he doesn't have full sympathy. He didn't live it out. But he knows what it means to experience the infirmities of the flesh. So again, the author of Hebrews is saying it's not a problem with the revelation of God. It's not a problem with Christ. It's a problem of our perspective and understanding who Jesus Christ is. 
Satan is going to tell us what? He's going to deceive us and saying, hey, get your life together. Put everything in line. And, and when it's all together, then you come to God because then he's going to want to hear from you because then you've made yourself perfect and holy. If we can make ourselves perfect and holy, we don't need Jesus Christ. And that's the other thing he wants us to understand when he uses a key word. He made propitiation. He made a payment for sin. It means all the debt that is rendered has been paid. So we, we have immunity before the throne of God if we put this in legal language. It means that, that these sins are not counted against us in, in, in the sense that, you know, the Lord says, yeah, but you did this and you didn't counteract it. It's understanding that as this payment is made, as Christ is our priest, we have the beauty of this typology. Now, I'm not saying we go back to the tabernacle. I'm not saying we go back to the temple. But I think so often we qualify these types that we miss the essence of what they communicate. The tabernacle communicates God seated in the presence of his wicked people. And he is there in the presence of them, communing with them, sojourning with them. The temple testifies to being a people at rest in the land. God seated in the midst of them, present with them. That is a picture of where the Lord is bringing us in this new world. And we say, but how do we get there? The author tells us in verses 14 through 18, we may not see the fullness of what Psalm 8 promises. But yet we know from Psalm 110.1, as he has said, he is seated in the right hand of God. And we say, well, why does that matter? Well, now he's adding to this. It's because you have a high priest seated in a heavenly, holy, eternal temple that is literally outside of this world, beyond this age, a place where he is leading and shepherding us. This is setting the stage for chapter 3 with the Christian sojourn, helping us understand, yes, we are tested, we taste the dust, we experience the hardship of this life. Where is our hope? We are made alive, secured by a perfect priest who has made a definitive payment once for all in Christ Jesus. And so when we begin with that question, so do we really have a priest? Do we really have an advocate? Do, do we really have someone who cares? Or is it just that God has entered history, made a redemption, and just waits for us to meander through this world and hopefully we arrive at the right place. The author of Hebrews understands we may think that. And he goes through a series of texts that, that could lead us to that place if we stopped at verse 13. We could think, wow, great. Jesus Christ prevailed. Well, what does that really mean? Understand, he, he beat the devil. What does that really mean? But this is where the author prosecutes the case further in verses 14 through 18. Basically saying, I want you to understand explicitly what this means at this point as I set the stage. While you don't see the full glory of Christ's victory, Psalm 110 is still true. He is seated at the right hand of God. And when you're tempted to say, but where is my priest? Where is that satisfaction? Where is that sacrifice? Saying in Christ Jesus, he made the sacrifice once for all. And you say, but in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my hardship, how do I know that God is there? Saying, well, 
God is a personal God. He's establishing a world where he wants to commune with you. That's what God is doing. He has manifested this in sending Christ to take on the flesh to do what Psalm 8 promised to do. And now that same priest who has taken on the flesh is calling out. And he's saying, come to me. Cry out to me. You are ones who are made whole only in me. Let us not then deceive ourselves in the midst of our temptation of thinking we are so strong and so mighty that we ourselves can stand up to the slanderer, the devil himself, and all his lies and deception. We can't. But it's not that we just go in this angst and this fear and, and feel as if there's no hope. We call out to our Christ. And as we call out to our Christ, we know that our priest hears our cries, hears our prayers. He is sympathetic to us. He's not someone who is going to turn his back and say, I can't believe you struggle with that. He has come to sanctify, to purify, to bring us to this land of rest. We come before him in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the struggle. We ask him to sort it out and to work with us, and we are assured that he is a God who continues to walk in the midst of it. And why is that? Because he's given the visible typology of walking in the midst of his messed up people Israel, in the midst of their wilderness wandering in a tabernacle, meeting with them in a tent of meeting, meeting with them in a temple. And the author of Hebrews is saying to us, how much more assured ought you to be now that we move from a time of promise and assertion to a time of realization of your priest king residing in the glory of heaven, not seeing the fullness of his subjection is not a problem with his work. It's a problem with our perspective. May our perspective, may our orientation be brought in line with the orientation where the author of Hebrews exhorts us of seeing ourselves as a priestly people, secured in Christ, once for all, sojourning in his power and desiring to conform to him as his redeemed, because he is our shield and defender who has overcome. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.